The Clue of the Silver Spoons by Robert Barr. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read and recorded by S. G. A. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Clue of the Silver Spoons. When the card was brought in to me, I looked upon it with some misgiving, for I scented a commercial transaction. And although such cases are lucrative enough, nevertheless, I, Eugene Valmont, formerly high in the service of the French government, do not care to be connected with them. They usually pertain to sordid business affairs that present little that is of interest to a man who, in his time, has dealt with subtle questions of diplomacy upon which the welfare of nations sometimes turned. The name of Bentham Gibbs is familiar to everyone, connected as it is with the much-advertised Pickles, whose glaring announcements in crude crimson and green strike the eye everywhere in England and shock the artistic taste wherever seen. Me, I have never tasted them, and shall not, so long as a French restaurant remains open in London, and I doubt not they are as pronounced to the palate as their advertisement is distressing to the eye. If, then this gross pickle manufacturer expected me to track down those who were infringing upon the recipes for making his so-called sauces, chutneys, and the like, he would find himself mistaken. For I was now in a position to pick and choose my cases, and a case of pickles did not allure me. Beware of imitations, said the advertisement. None genuine without the facsimile of the signature of Bentham Gibbs. Ah, well, not for me were either the pickles or the tracking of imitators. A forged check, yes, if you like, but the forged signature of Mr. Gibbs on a pickle bottle was not for me. Nevertheless, I said to Armand, Show the gentleman in, and he did so. To my astonishment, there entered a young man, quite correctly dressed in dark frock coat, faultless waistcoat and trousers, that proclaimed the Bond Street tailor. When he spoke, his voice and language were those of a gentleman. Monsieur Walmont, he inquired. At your service, I replied, bowing and waving my hand as Armand placed a chair for him and withdrew. I'm a barrister with the chambers in the temple, began Mr. Gibbs, and for some days a matter has been troubling me about which I have now come to seek your advice, your name having been suggested by a friend in whom I confided. Am I acquainted with him? I asked. I think not, replied Mr. Gibbs. He is also a barrister with the chambers in the same building as my own. Lionel Dacker is his name. I never heard of him. Very likely not. Nevertheless, he recommended you as a man who could keep his own counsel. And if you take up this case, I desire the utmost secrecy preserved, whatever may be the outcome. I bowed, but made no protestation. Secrecy is a matter of course with me. The Englishman paused for a few moments as we expected fervent assurances 
Then he went on with no trace of disappointment on his countenance at not receiving them. On the night of the 23rd, I gave a little dinner to six friends of mine in my own rooms. I may say that, so far as I am aware, they are all gentlemen of unimpeachable character. On the night of the dinner, I was detained later than I expected at a reception, and in driving to the temple, was still further delayed by a block of traffic in the Piccadilly, so that when I arrived at my chambers, there was barely time for me to dress and receive my guests. Mamaya Johnson had everything laid out ready for me in my dressing room, and as I passed through it, I hurriedly flung off the coat I was wearing and carelessly left it over the back of a chair in the dining room, where neither Johnson nor myself noticed it until my attention was called to it after the dinner was over and everyone was rather jolly with wine. This coat had an inside pocket. Usually any frock coat I wear at an afternoon reception has not an inside pocket, but I had been rather on the rush all day. My father is a manufacturer whose name may be familiar to you, and I am on the director's board of his company. On this occasion I had to take a cab from the city to the reception I spoke of, and had not time to go and change at my rooms. The reception was somewhat bohemian affair, extremely interesting, of course, but not too particular as to costume, so I went as I was. In this inside pocket rested a thin package, composed of two pieces of pasteboard, and between them five twenty-pound Bank of England notes, folded lengthways, and held in place between the pasteboards by an elastic rubber band. I had thrown the coat over the chair in such a way that the inside pockets was exposed, and the ends of the notes plainly recognizable. Over the coffee and cigars, one of my guests laughingly called my attention to what he termed my vulgar display of wealth, and Johnson, in some confusion at having neglected to put the coat away, now picked it up and took it to the reception room, where the wraps of my guests lay about promiscuously. He should, of course, have placed it in my wardrobe, but he said afterwards he thought it belonged to the guest who had spoken. You see, he was in my dressing room when I threw my coat on the chair, in making my way thither, and of course, he had not noticed the coat in the hurry of arriving guests, otherwise he would have put it where it belonged. After everybody had gone, Johnson came to me and said the coat was there, but the package was missing, nor has any trace of it been found since that night. The dinner was fetched in from outside, I suppose? Yes. How many waiters served it? Two. They are men who have often been in my employ on similar occasions, but apart from that, they had left my chambers before the incident of the coat happened. Neither of them went into the reception room, I take it? No. I am certain that not even suspicion can attach to either of the waiters. Your man Johnson has been with me for years. He could have easily stolen much more than a hundred pounds if he had wished to do so, but I have never known him to take a penny that did not belong to him. Will you favour me with the names of your guests, Mr. Gibbs? Viscount Stern sat at my right hand, and at my left Lord Templemore, 
Sir John Sinclair next to him, and Angus McKellar next to Sinclair. After Viscount Stern was Lionel Dacre, and at his right, Vincent Ennis. On a sheet of paper, I had written the names of the guests and noted their places at the table. Which guests drew your attention to the money? Lionel Dacre. Is there a window looking out from the reception room? Two of them. Were they fastened on the night of the dinner party? I could not be sure. Johnson would know very likely. You are hinting at the possibility of a thief coming in through a reception room window while we were somewhat noisy over our wine. I think such a solution highly improbable. My rooms are on the third floor, and a thief would scarcely venture to make an entrance when he could not know, but there was a company being entertained. Besides this, the court was there but an hour or so, and it seems to me whoever stole those notes knew where they were. That sounds reasonable, I had to admit. Have you spoken to anyone about your loss? To no one but Dacker, who recommended me to see you. Oh, yes, and to Johnson, of course. I could not help noting that this was the fourth or fifth time Dacker's name had come up during our conversation. Why to Dacker? I asked. Oh, well, you see, he occupies the chambers in the same building, on the ground floor. He's a very good fellow, and we are by way of being firm friends. Then it was he who had called to attention to the money, so I thought he should know the sequel. How did you take your news? Now that you call attention to the fact, he seemed slightly troubled. I should like to say, however, that you must not be misled by that. Lionel Dacre could no more steal than he could lie. Did he seem surprised when you mentioned the theft? Bentman Gibbs paused a moment before replying, knitting his brows in thought. No, he said at last. And come to think of it, it almost appears as if he had been expecting my announcement. Doesn't that strike you as rather strange, Mr. Gibbs? Really, my mind is in such a whirl. I don't know what to think. But it's perfectly absurd to suspect Dacre. If you knew the man, you would understand what I mean. He comes from an excellent family, and he is... Oh, he's Lionel Dacre. And when you have said that, you have made any suspicion absurd. I suppose you had the rooms thoroughly searched. The packet didn't drop out and remain unnoticed in some corner. No. Johnson and myself examined every inch of the premises. Have you the numbers of the notes? Yes. I got them from the bank next morning. Payment was stopped, and so far, not one of the fives has been presented. Of course, one or more may have been cashed at some shop, but none have been offered to any banks. A twenty-pound note is not accepted without scrutiny, so the chances are that the thief may have some difficulty in disposing them. As I told you, I don't mind the loss of money at all. It's the uncertainty, the uneasiness caused by the incident which troubles me. You'll comprehend this when I say that if you are good enough to interest yourself in this case, I shall be disappointed if your fee does not exceed the amount I have lost. 
Mr. Gibbs rose as he said this, and I accompanied him to the door, assuring him that I should do my best to solve the mystery. Whether he sprang from pickles or not, I realized he was a polished and generous gentleman who estimated the services of a professional expert like myself at their true value. I shall not give details of my researches during the following few days, because the trend of them must be gone over in a remarkable interview I had somewhat later, and there is little use in repeating myself. Suffice it to say, then, that an examination of the rooms and a close cross-questioning of Johnson satisfied me that he and the other two waiters were innocent. I was also convinced that no thief made a space with the window, and I came to the conclusion that the notes were stolen by one of the guests. Further investigation convinced me that the thief was no other than Lionel Dacker, the only one of the six in pressing need of money at that time. I had Dacker shadowed, and during one of his absences made the acquaintances of his man Hopper, a surly, impolite brute who accepted my golden sovereign quickly enough but gave me little in exchange for it. But while I conversed with him, there arrived in the passage, where we were talking together, a large case of champagne, bearing one of the best-known names in the trade, and branded as being of the vintage of 78. Now, I know that the product of Camelot Frères is not bought as cheaply as British beer, and I also had learned that the two short weeks before Lionel Dacker was at his wit's end for money. Yet, he was still the same briefless barrister he had ever been. On the morning after my unsatisfactory conversation with his man Hopper, I was astonished to receive the following note, written on a dainty correspondence card. 3 and 4, Vellum Buildings, Inner Temple, E.C. Mr. Lionel Dacker presents his compliments to Monsieur Eugene Valmont, and would be obliged if Monsieur Valmont could make it convenient to call upon him in his chambers tomorrow morning at eleven. Had the man become aware that he was being shadowed, or did the surly servant inform him of the inquiries made? I was soon to know. I called punctually at eleven next morning and was received with charming urbanity by Mr. Dacker himself. The taciturn Hopper had evidently been sent away for the occasion. "'My dear Monsieur Valmont, I am delighted to meet you,' said the young man, with more effusiveness than I had ever noticed an Englishman before, although his very next words supplied an explanation that did not occur to me until afterwards as somewhat far-fetched. I believe we are by way of being countrymen, and therefore, although the hour is early, I suppose you will allow me to offer you some of that bottled sunshine of the year 78, from La Belle of France, to whose prosperity and honour we shall drink together. For such a toast at any hour is propitious. And to my amazement he brought forth from the case I had seen arrive two days before a bottle of that superb vintage. Now, said I to myself, 
It is going to be difficult to keep a clear head if the aroma of that nectar rises to the brain. But tempting as is the cup, I shall drink sparingly, and hope he may not be so judicious. Sensitive, I already experienced the charm of his personality, and well understood the friendship Mr. Bentham Gibbs felt for him. But I saw the trap spread before me. He expected under the influence of champagne and courtesy, to extract a promise from me which I find myself unable to give. Sir, you interest me by claiming kinship with France. I understood that you belonged to one of the oldest families of England. Ah, England, he cried with an expressive gesture of outspreading hands truly Parisian in its significance. The trunk belongs to England, of course, but the root, ah, the root, Monsieur Valmont, penetrated the soil from which this wine of God's has been drawn. Then, filling my glass and his own, he cried, To France, which my family left in the year 1066. I could not help laughing at his fervent ejaculation. 1066? Ah, oh, that's a long time ago, Mr. Dacker. In years, perhaps, in feelings but a day. My forefathers came over to steal, and, Lord, how well they accomplished it. They stole the whole country, something like a theft, say I, under that prince of robbers well-named the Conqueror. In our secret hearts we all admire a great thief, and if not a great one, then an expert one, who covers his tracks so perfectly that the hounds of justice are baffled in attempting to follow them. Now, even you, Monsieur Walmont, I can see you are a most generous of men, with a lively sympathy found to perfection only in France. Even you must suffer a pang of regret when you lay a thief by the heels who has done his task deftly. I fear, Mr. Dacker, you credit me with a magnanimity to which I dare not lay claim. The criminal is a danger to society. True, true, you are in the right, Monsieur Valmont. Still, admit there are cases that would touch you tenderly. For example, a man, ordinarily honest, a great deed, a sudden opportunity. He takes that of which another has abundance, and he nothing. What then, Monsieur Valmont? Is the man to be sent to perdition for a momentary weakness? His words astonished me. Was I on the verge of hearing a confession? It almost amounted to that already. Mr. Dacker, I said, I cannot enter into the subtleties you pursue. My duty is to find the criminal. You are in the right, Monsieur Valmont, and I am enchanted to find so sensible a head on French shoulders. Although you are a more recent arrival, if I may say so, than myself. You nevertheless already give utterances to the sentiments which do honour to England. It is your duty to hunt down the criminal. Very well. In that, I think I can aid you. So I have taken the liberty of requesting your attendance here this morning. Let me fill your glass again, Mr. Almond. No more, I beg you, Mr. Dacker. What? Do you think the receiver is as bad as the thief? 
I was so taken aback at his remark that I suppose my face showed the amazement within me. But the young man merely laughed with the apparent free-hearted enjoyment, poured some more wine in his own glass and tossed it off. Not knowing what to say, I changed the trend of conversation. Mr. Gibbs said that you have been kind enough to recommend me to his attention. May I ask how you came to hear of me? Ah, who has not heard of the renowned Monsieur Walmont? And as he said this, for the first time, there began to grow a suspicion in my mind that he was chaffing me, as it is called in England, a procedure which I cannot endure. Indeed, if this young man practiced it in my own country, he would find himself with a duel on his hands before he had gone far. However, the next instant his voice resumed its original fascination, and I listened to it as to some delicious melody. I have only to mention my cousin, Lady Gladys Dacker, and you will at once understand why I recommended you to my friend. The case of Lady Gladys, you will remember, required a delicate touch, which is not always to be had in this land of England, except when those who possess the gift do us the honour to sojourn with us. I noticed that my glass was filled again, and as I bowed my acknowledgments to his compliment, I indulged in another sip of the delicious wine, and then I sighed, for I began to realize it was going to be difficult for me, in spite of my disclaimer, to tell this man's friend he had stolen the money. All this time he had been sitting on the edge of the table, while I occupied a chair at its end. He sat there in a careless fashion, swinging a foot to and fro. Now he sprang to the floor and drew up a chair placing on the table a blank sheet of paper. Then he took from the mantel-sheaf a packet of letters, and I was astonished to see they were held together by two bits of cardboard and a rubber band similar to the combination that had held the folded banknotes. With great nonchalance, he slipped off the rubber band, threw it and the pieces of cardboard on the table before me, leaving the documents loose to his hand. Now, Monsieur Walmont, he cried jauntily, you have been occupied for several days on this case, the case of my dear friend Bentham Gibbs, who is one of the best fellows in the world. He said the same of you, Mr. Dacker. I am gratified to hear it. Would you mind letting me know to what point your researches have led you? They have led me to a direction rather than to a point. Ah, in the direction of a man, of course. Certainly. Who is he? Will you pardon me if I decline to answer you at the present moment? That means you're not sure. It may mean, Mr. Dacker, that I am employed by Mr. Gibbs and do not feel at the liberty to disclose to another the results of my quest without his permission. But Mr. Bentham Gibbs and I are entirely at one on this matter. Perhaps you are aware that I am the only person with whom he has discussed the case besides yourself. That is undoubtedly true, Mr. Dacker. Still, you see the difficulty of my position. Yes, I do. 
and so shall not press you further. But I have also been interesting myself in a purely amateurish way, of course. You would perhaps have no disinclination to learn whether my deductions agree with yours. Not in the least. I should be very glad to know the conclusion at which you have arrived. May I ask if you suspect anyone in particular? Yes, I do. Will you name him? No. I shall copy the admirable reticence you yourself have shown. And now let us attack this mystery in a sane and business-like manner. You have already examined the room. Well, here is a rough sketch of it. There is the table. In this corner, the chair on which the coat was flung. Here sat Gibbs at the head of the table. Those on the left-hand side had their backs to the chair. I, being in the centre of the right, saw the chair, the coat, and the notes, and called attention to them. Now our first duty is to find a motive. If it were a murder, our motive might have been hatred, revenge, robbery, what you like. As it is simply the stealing of money, the man must have been either a born thief, or else some hitherto innocent person pressed to crime by great necessity. Do you agree with me, Monsieur Valmont? Perfectly. You follow exactly the line of my own reasoning. Very well. It is unlikely that a born thief was one of Mr. Gibbs' guests. Therefore we are reduced to look for a man under the spur of necessity. A man who has had no money of his own, but must raise a certain amount, let us say by a certain date, if we can find such a man in that company. Do you not agree with me that he is likely to be the thief? Yes, I do. Then let us start our process of elimination. Out goes Viscount Stern. A man with 20,000 acres of land. And nobody quite knows what income. I mark off the names of Lord Templemore, one of His Majesty's judges, entirely above suspicion. Next, Sir John Sinclair. He is also rich. But Vincent Ennis is still richer. So the pencil obliterates his name. Now we have Angus McKellar, an author of some note, as you are well aware, deriving a good income from his books, and a better one from his plays. A canny Scot, so we may rub his name off our paper and our memory. How do my erasures correspond with yours, Monsieur Valmont? They correspond exactly, Mr. Decker. I'm flattered to hear it. There remains one name untouched. Mr. Lionel Dacker, the descendant, as we have said, of robbers. I have not said so, Mr. Dacker. Ah, my dear Walmont, the politeness of your country asserts itself. Let us not be deluded, but follow our inquiry wherever it leads. I suspect Lionel Dacker. What do you know of his circumstances before the dinner of the 23rd? As I made no reply, he looked upon me with his frank, boyish face illumined with a winning smile. You know nothing of his circumstances? he asked. It grieves me to state that I do. Mr. Lionel Dacker was penniless on the night of the dinner on the 23rd.
Oh, don't exaggerate, Monsieur Valmont, cried Dacre, with a laugh. He had one sixpence, two pennies, and a half penny. How did you know he was penniless? I knew he ordered a case of champagne from the London representative of Camelot Ferrez, and was refused unless he paid the money down. Quite right. And then when you were talking to Harper, you saw the case of champagne delivered. Excellent, excellent, Monsieur Valmont. But will a man steal, think you, to supply himself with an even so delicious a wine as this we have been tasting? And by the way, forgive my neglect, allow me to fill your glass, Monsieur Valmont. Not another drop, if you will excuse me, Mr. Dacre. Ah, yes, champagne should not be mixed with evidence. When we have finished, perhaps. What further proof have you? I have proof that Mr. Dacre was threatened with bankruptcy. If on the 24th he did not pay a bill of 78 pounds that has long been outstanding. I have proof that this was paid, not on the 24th, but on the 26th. Mr. Dacre had gone to the solicitor and assured him he would have given the money on that date whereupon he was given two days' grace. Ah, well, he was entitled to three, you know, in law. Yes, there, Mr. Walmont, you touch a fatal point. The threat of bankruptcy will drive a man in Dagger's position to almost any crime. Bankruptcy to a barrister spells ruin. It means a career blighted. It means a life ruined with little chance of resurrection. I see you grasp the supreme importance of that bit of evidence. The case of champagne is as nothing compared with it. And this reminds me that in crisis I shall take another sip with your permission. Sure you won't join me? Not at this juncture, Mr. Dacker. I envy your moderation. Here's the success of our search, Monsieur Walmont. I felt sorry for the gay young fellow. And with smiling face, he drank the champagne. Now, monsieur, he went on, I am amazed to learn how much you have found out. Really, I think tradespeople, solicitors, and all such should keep better guard on their tongues than they do. Nevertheless, these documents I have at my elbow, and which I expect would surprise you, are merely the letters and receipts. Here is a letter from the solicitor threatening me with bankruptcy. Here is his receipt dated the 26th. Here is the refusal of the wine merchant. And here is his receipt for that money. Here are the smaller bills liquidated. With my pencil we will add them up. 78 pounds bulks large. We add the smaller items and it totals 93 pounds 7 shillings and a 4 pence. Let us now examine my purse. Here's a five-pound note. There's a minted sovereign. Here's a twelve and sixpence in silver. Here's two pence in coppers. Now the purse is empty. Let us add this to the amount on paper. Do my eyes deceive me, or is the total exactly hundred pounds? There is a stolen money accounted for. Pardon me, Mr. Dacre, I said. There is still a sovereign on the mantelpiece. Dacre threw back his head and laughed with a great heartiness 
that I had yet known him to indulge in during our short acquaintance. By Jove, he cried, you got me there. I've forgotten completely about that pound on the mantelpiece, which belongs to you. To me? Impossible. It does and cannot interfere in the least with a hundred-pound calculation. That is the sovereign you gave to my man Hopper, who, believing me hard-pressed, took it that I might have the enjoyment of it. Hopper belongs to our family, or the family belongs to him. I'm not sure which. You must have missed him in the differential bearings of a manservant in Paris. Yet he is true gold, like the sovereign you bestowed upon him, and he bestowed upon me. Now here, monsieur, is the evidence of the theft, together with the rubber band and two pieces of cardboard. Ask my friend Gibbs to examine them minutely. They are all at your disposition, monsieur, and you will learn how much easier it is to deal with the master than with the servant when you wish information. All the gold you possess would not have wrung this incriminating document from the old hopper. I had to send him away today to the West End, fearing that in his brutal British way he might have assaulted you if he had an inkling of your mission. Mr. Dacker, said I slowly, you have thoroughly convinced me. I thought I would, he interrupted with a laugh, that you did not take the money. Oh, this is a change of wind, surely. Many a man has been hanged through a chain of circumstantial evidence much weaker than which I have exhibited to you. Do you see the subtlety of my action? Ninety-nine persons in a hundred would say, no man could be such a fool to put Walmont on his track and then place in Walmont's hand such striking evidence. But there comes in my craftiness. Of course, the rock you run up against will be Gibbs' incredulity. The first question he will ask you may be this. Why not Dacker come and borrow the money from me? Now, there you have a certain weakness in your chain of evidence. I know perfectly well that Gibbs would lend me the money, and he knew perfectly well that if I were pressed to the wall, I should ask him. Mr. Dacker, said I, you have been playing with me. I should resent that with most men. But whether it is your own genial manner, or the effect of this excellent champagne, or both together, I forgive you. But I am convinced of another thing. You know who took the money. <laughs> I don't know, but I suspect. Will you tell me whom you suspect? That would not be fair, but I shall now take the liberty of filling your glass with champagne. I am your guest, Mr. Dacker. Admirably answered, monsieur, he replied, pouring out the wine. And now I shall give you the clue. Find out all about the story of the silver spoons. The story of the silver spoons? What silver spoons? Ah, that is the point. You step out of the temple into Fleet Street, seize by the shoulders the first man you meet, and ask him to tell you about the silver spoons. There are but two men and two spoons concerned. When you learn who those two men are, you will know that one of them did not take the money, 
and I give you my assurance that the other did. You speak in mystery, Mr. Dacker. But certainly, for I am speaking to Monsieur Eugene Valmont. I echo your words, sir, admirably answered. You put me on my mettle, and I flatter myself that I see your kindly drift. You wish to solve the mystery of the stolen money. Sir, you do me honour, and I drink to your health. To yours, monsieur, said Lionel Dagger, and here is a further piece of information which my friend Gibbs would never have given you. When he told me the money was gone, I cried in anguish, impending bankruptcy. I wish to goodness I had it. Whereupon he immediately compelled me to accept his cheque for a hundred pounds, of which I has, as I have shown you, alas, only six pounds, twelve and eight pence remains. On leaving Mr. Dacre, I took a hansom to a cafe in Regent Street which is a possible imitation of a similar places of refreshment in Paris. There, calling for a cup of black coffee, I sat down to think. The clue of the silver spoons. He had laughingly suggested that I should take by shoulders the first man I meet and ask him what the story of the silver spoons was. This course naturally struck me as absurd. Nevertheless, it contained a hint. I must ask somebody that the right person to tell me the tale of the silver spoons. Under the influence of the black coffee, I reasoned it out in this way. On the night of the 23rd, someone of the six guests there present stole a hundred pounds. But Dacre had said that one of the actors in the silver spoon episode was the actual thief. That person, then, must have been one of Mr. Gibbs' guests at the dinner of the 23rd. Probably two of the guests were the participators in the Silver Spoon comedy. But be that as it may, follow that one at least of the men around Mr. Gibbs' table knew the episode of the Silver Spoons. Perhaps Bentham Gibbs himself was cognizant of it. It followed, therefore, that the easiest plan was to question each of the men who partook of that dinner. Yet, if only one knew about the spoons, that one must also have some idea that these spoons formed the clue which attached him to the crime of the 23rd, in which case he was little likely to divulge what he knew to an entire stranger. Of course, I might go to Dacre himself and demand the story of the silver spoons, but this would be a confession of failure on my part and I rather dreaded Lionel Dacre's haughty laughter when I admitted that the mystery was too much for me. Besides this, I was very well aware of the young man's kindly intentions towards me. He wished me to unravel the coil myself, and so I determined not to go to him except as a last resource. I resolved to begin with Mr. Gibbs, and finishing my coffee, got again into a hansom, and drove back to the temple. I found Mr. Gibbs in his room, and after greeting me, his first inquiry was about the case. How are you getting on? he asked. I think I'm getting on fairly well, I replied, and expect to finish in a day or two. 
if you will kindly tell me the story of the silver spoons. The silver spoons, he echoed, quite evidently not understanding me. There happened an incident in which two men were engaged, and this incident related to a pair of silver spoons. I want to get the particulars of that. I haven't the slightest idea what you're talking about, replied Gibbs, thoroughly bewildered. You will have to be more definite, I fear, if you are to get any help from me. I cannot be more definite, because I have already told you all I know. What bearing has all this on our case? I was informed that if I got hold of the clue of silver spoons, I should be in a fair way of setting our case. Who told you that? Mr. Lionel Dacker. Oh, does Dacker refer to his own conjuring? I don't know, I'm sure. What was his conjuring? A very clever trick he did one night at dinner here, about two months ago. Had it anything to do with silver spoons? Well, it was silver spoons or silver forks or something of that kind. I had entirely forgotten the incident. So far as I recollect at the moment, there was a slate of hand man of great expertness in one of the music halls, and the talk turned upon him. Then Dacre said that the tricks he did were easy, and holding up a spoon or a fork, I don't remember which, he asserted his ability to make it disappear before our eyes, to be found afterwards in the clothing of someone there present. Several offered to make him a bet that he could do nothing of that kind, but he said he would bet with no one but Innes, who sat opposite him. Innes, with some reluctance, accepted the bet, and then Dacker, with a great show of the usual conjurer's gesticulations, spread forth his empty hands, and said we should find the spoon in Innes's pocket. And there, sure enough, it was. It was a clever trick, but we were never able to get him to repeat it. Thank you very much, Mr. Gibbs. I think I see daylight now. If you do, you're cleverer than I, by a long chalk cried Bentham Gibbs, as I took my departure. I went directly downstairs, and knocked at Mr. Dacre's door once more. He opened the door himself, and his man had not yet having returned. Ah, monsieur, he cried, back already? You don't mean to tell me you have so soon got to the bottom of the silver spoon entanglement? I think I have, Mr. Dacre. You were sitting at a dinner opposite Mr. Vincent Innes. You saw him conceal a silver spoon in his pocket. You probably waited for some time to understand what he meant by this. As he did not return the spoon to its place, you proposed a conjuring trick, made the bet with him, and thus the spoon was returned to the table. Excellent, excellent, monsieur. That was very nearly what occurred except that I acted at once. I had 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 experiences with Mr. Vincent Innes before. Never did he come to these rooms without my missing some trinket after he was gone. I am not a man of many possessions, while Mr. Innes is a very rich person, and so, if anything is taken, 
I have little difficulty in coming to a knowledge of my loss. Of course, I never mentioned these disappearances to him. They were all trivial, as I have said, and so far as the silver spoon was concerned, it was of no great value either. But I thought the bet and the recovery of the spoon would teach him a lesson. It apparently had not done so. On the night of the 23rd, he sat at my right hand, as you will see by consulting a diagram of the table and the guests. I asked him a question twice, to which he did not reply. And looking at him, I was startled by the expression in his eyes. They were fixed on a distant corner of the room, and following his gaze, I saw that he was looking at with such hypnotizing concentration. So absorbed was he in contemplation of the packet there, so plainly exposed, that he seemed entirely oblivious to what was going around him. I roused him from his trance by jocularly calling Gibbs' attention to the display of money. I expected in this way to save Innes from committing the act, which he seemingly did commit. Imagine then the dilemma in which I was placed when Mr. Gibbs confided to me the morning after what had occurred the night before. I was positive that Innes had taken the money, yet I possessed no proof of it. I could not tell Gibbs, and I dare not speak to Innes. Of course, monsieur, you do not need to be told that Innes is not a thief in the ordinary sense of the word. He has no need to steal, and yet apparently cannot help himself doing so. I am sure that no attempt has been made to pass those notes. They are doubtless in his home at Kensington at this present moment. He is, in fact, a kleptomaniac, or a maniac of some sort. And now, Monsieur Valmont, was my hint regarding the silver spoons of any value to you? Of the most infinite value, Mr. Dacker. Then let me make another suggestion. I leave it entirely to your bravery, a bravery which I confess I do not myself possess. Will you take a hansom, drive to Mr. Innes's house in the Cromwell Road, confront him quietly, and ask him for the return of the packet? I am anxious to know what will happen. If he hands it to you, as I expect he will, then you must tell Mr. Gibbs the whole story. Mr. Dacker, your suggestion shall be immediately acted upon, and I thank you for your compliment to my courage. I found that Mr. Innes inhabited a very grand house. After a time, he entered the study on the ground floor, to which I had been conducted. He held my card in his hand, and was looking at it with some surprise. I think I have not the pleasure of knowing you, Mr. Walmont, he said courteously enough. No, I have called on a matter of business. I was once investigator for the French government, and now I am doing private detective work here in London. Ah, and how is that supposed to interest me? I have nothing that I wish investigated. I did not send for you, did I? No, Mr. Innes. I merely took the liberty of calling to ask you to let me have the package you took out of Mr. Bentham Gibbs' frock coat pocket on the night of the 23rd. He wishes it returned, does he? Yes. Mr. Innes calmly went to a desk 
which he unlocked and opened, displaying a veritable museum of trinkets of one sort and another. Pulling out a small drawer, he took from it the packet containing five twenty-pound notes. Apparently, it had never been undone. With a smile, he handed it to me. You will make my apologies, Mr. Gibbs, for not returning it before. Tell him I have been unusually busy of late. I shall not fail to do so, said I with a bow. Thank you so much. Good morning, Monsieur Valmont. Good morning, Mr. Innes. And so I returned the packet to Mr. Bentham Gibbs, who pulled the notes from between their pasteboard protection and begged me to accept them. The End of the Clue of Silver Spoons by Robert Barr